are uh, we are today in Romans chapter 11 still, but we're getting close to the end. We might finish it next week, um, and then again, we might not. <laughs> uh, no, chapter 11. <laughs> hey, now, now I want you to know we're moving right along. <laughs> At least from what I thought it would take. So. Yeah, we're flying. We're flying. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but today we want to look at beginning in verse 25. And uh, and originally I thought we might get down through 29. I, I don't know if I'm going to try to do that much today because uh, there's quite a bit in these first three verses. Uh, last week, or excuse me, two weeks ago when we were together last, we looked at verses uh, 17 through uh, 24 or so, and uh, so let's let's go back and and kind of read uh, back beginning in verse 11 and up through today's passage again, just to set the context, kind of remind ourselves of <clears throat> where we are. Paul, of course, is speaking of the uh, of the Jews. He's speaking of Israel as a people, and he says in verse eleven, he says, "I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world, and their failure is riches for the Gentiles." How much more will their fulfillment be? Or you could read that, their fullness. How much more will their fullness be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, What will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He will not spare you Either And then the verses we looked at uh, a couple of weeks ago. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God. To those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from that which is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those who are natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? 
For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Okay, well, I'm sure we'll be doing well if we get that far. So, last time we were together, we really were focusing beginning in verse 22 down through 24. Behold the kindness and severity of the Lord, etc. Can you remember any of the things we talked about uh, as we looked at that passage? Okay. Okay. What else? What is it that he wants us particularly to give attention to, to think about? There in verse... 22. Okay, the kindness and severity of God. He's actually going to, in this, in this passage, taking the truth that he's talked about and he's built up as he's gone through chapter 11, the truth that Israel has been hardened and they've been cut off from the cultivated olive tree, so to speak, that metaphor that he uses of the olive tree. They've been, they've been cut off and, and in their place, the Gentiles have been, the Gentile believers have been grafted in, okay? Given this understanding, he wants us to stop and he wants us to think about the kindness and the severity of God. Because in these two events, and in these two phenomena, the phenomena of Israel through their unbelief or because of their unbelief being cut off, and, and the Gentiles because of their belief being grafted in, we see in that a demonstration of two, to, to, of two aspects of God, two things about God, both His kindness and His severity. And we talked a little bit about how oftentimes we... As individuals, we tend to focus on one aspect of God rather than the other. And, we, we, and so it's very, it's very popular today uh, to think only of God's kindness, only of God's love, and not to think about the other side of God, the other aspect of God, and that's His severity. And for some people, it's, um, and probably not the majority of people, but for some people, uh, the tendency is just the opposite. They tend to see God as this kind of big policeman in the sky, a guy wielding his club, and you know, if you step out of line, he's going to smack you one. And, and so they tend to think of God that way, and, and they don't really reflect much on God's love and God's kindness. But Paul is enjoining us to think about both. And the reason he wants us to think about both 
is because we see in the hardening and cutting off of the Jews of Israel and the, the faith and the grafting in of the Gentiles, we see an illustration of the kindness and severity of God. But he's telling us this, not just so we'll know that in the past that God was kind to the Gentiles and severe with Israel, but he's telling us in order to inform us about what the future might hold. If God is both kind and God is severe, and we have seen it illustrated in the salvation of the Gentiles and the cutting off of Israel, what does that tell us about how we ought to think about the future? Okay, that's one aspect of it. If we have seen the severity of God with Israel, it's possible we could also see the severity of God with the Gentiles. So, thinking that we're better or special because we're grafted in. Precisely, precisely. Uh, so. So, it's a warning for us as Gentiles. It's a warning against arrogance. It's a warning against conceit. It's a warning against kind of a lackadaisical attitude that since, well, since I'm in, I'm okay now and I never have to worry about the severity of God. Now, remember, we're talking about the Gentiles as a class. We're not talking here about an individual's loss of salvation. That's not what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the Gentiles as a class. We were, uh, as the family was sitting around one evening this week, we had family in, of course, for Thanksgiving, and we were sitting around and we were talking. I don't even remember how we got uh, uh, talking about, well, I know we were talking about the story of the prodigal son is how we got talking about this. But the subject came up of how throughout the history of the church, the Gentile church, throughout its history, every group, every movement, every denomination, given enough time, has walked away from the Lord and uh, has, has, uh, has become calloused and indifferent to God and has, in one sense, been cut off. And, and uh, so that really is something that... that that as we contemplate the, the kindness and the severity of God, we've seen the severity of God in the past, and it's a warning to us as believing Gentiles. It's a warning to us as a group and as a class of, of the severity of God and the consequences of that. We also made an application of that, of course, on a personal level. He's not talking on a personal individual level, but we applied it on a personal individual level, if you'll remember, that, uh, of course, I think Scripture is quite clear that, it, that, that, a, that a believer cannot lose their salvation, but it is still true that God is a severe God, even with believers. And when we as believers uh, are indifferent to the Lord, we become cold and, and callous towards the Lord or unbelieving in certain respects, God will deal with us severely. It doesn't mean we'll lose our salvation or be cut off in that sense, but it certainly is an admonition to us to remember that God, when it turns to discipline, can be quite severe. So, so there's that aspect that in looking at the, the kindness and the severity of God is this warning to the Gentiles. There's that half of it. But what's the other half? What's the other, other thing we learn as we contemplate the kindness and severity of God? 
possible for the Gentiles to be cut off, as Paul says. The Jews could experience the kindness of God. So, so we have the we have the kindness and we have the severity of God. And if the Jews having experienced God's severity, or if the yeah, if the Jews have experienced God's severity, the Gentiles could also experience God's severity. And if the Gentiles have experienced God's kindness, the Jews could also experience God's kindness. And so, and so there's this. So there's kind of this. Uh, in this, these three verses that we looked at, there's this kind of dual aspect to the future. There's the admonition or warning to the Gentiles, and there's this promise of hope to to Israel that they could be grafted in. So that's kind of where he's going with that, and what's he, what he's developing with that. And those are some of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, so then he picks it up in verse 25, and he says, "I I don't want you to be." Uh, I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in so that all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So in verses 25 through 27, He's kind of summarizing. He's actually he's actually launching here in these verses into kind of his grand conclusion of these things that he's been saying all the way through chapter 11 about this whole thing about Israel being cut off and maybe being grafted back in and the Gentiles being grafted in but could be cut off. He's going to summarize that all now in the verses that we pick up with here in verse 25. Uh, and down actually through the end of the chapter. But he's not only summarizing chapter 11, he's summarizing his whole argument that began all the way back in chapter 9. So we remember we've talked about how chapters 9, 10, and 11 are, are, a, are a set. They go together. Okay, It's all one argument. And it goes back to that question that he asked very early in chapter 9, is has God's promise to Israel failed? Has God's word regarding Israel, uh, Israel failed? Has God changed his mind about Israel? Okay. It's very important for us to know for a couple reasons. One of it is very important for us to know because it has a bearing, as we see, on our attitude towards the Jews and whether or not we become arrogant towards them. And the second thing is it has a great deal of bearing to us. Because if God's promises to Israel can change, if God can change his mind about the things that he promised Israel, then what security do we have? Okay. So this really is a very important and very practical question. And he deals with some very practical issues as he begins to summarize this. And he starts off by saying, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed. Now, this, this statement that he makes, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, is actually, a, it's what we call a, a, for Paul, it's a formula, okay? And uh, by that, I don't mean that it's, you know, sometimes we talk about a formula, we talk about something that's such a pattern, we don't even think about it, we just do it, okay? But that's not what, he, what we mean here. When you have, in Scripture, you have, a way of saying things that's repeated over and over again, sometimes almost 
sometimes the identical words or the identical phrase or very similar phrase. And it's repeated over and over again in Scripture in different places. We refer to that as a formula. It's a way of expressing something that's kind of been kind of been standardized to suggest an idea. And, and in this case, the formula is not one that we see throughout Scripture, but it's one that we see frequently in Paul's writings. And it's this expression, I don't want you to be ignorant. Okay? Now, they, they make it a little more gentle here in the New American when they say, I don't want you to be uninformed. But the idea is, I don't want you to be ignorant. Okay? I don't want you to be without knowledge. And, and what's interesting is, is Paul uses this formula uh, a half a dozen times in his writings. And every time he does, he throws in the word brethren. <laughs> so he says, I do not want you, brethren, to be ignorant. So it's kind of a harsh statement. <laughs> and so Paul is very gracious to us in reminding us that we're brothers. So he's not doing it looking down his nose at us. But he, there's something he wants to make sure that we are not unaware of, that we are not clueless about, okay, that we're not ignorant of. It's kind of like you can say anything you want to anybody as long as you follow it with, I'm just saying. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. And, uh, and so, Paul is saying here, he's saying, I don't want you to be uninformed. Now, this is, I, I just find that whole idea interesting that Paul uses that. Repeatedly, I don't know if you remember, but clear back in chapter 1 he used it. And he says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brethren, that I originally intended, I've always intended to come to Rome. And so there was something important about them knowing that it was all, it's always been his intention to come to Rome, but that he's been hindered so far, but he's still planning to come. Okay. And then, uh, and then he uses it here, of course, and he uses it in reference to a mystery. And we'll talk about that mystery here in a few minutes. But he talks about this mystery that he doesn't want them to be uninformed about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed about, about what happened with Israel in the wilderness. And he says how they, remember he talks about how they all went through the, they all went through the water, they all went through the Red Sea, and they all were under the cloud, and they all this, and they all that, and they all this, and they all that. But he says, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. And he says, I don't want you to be ignorant of that fact. And the reason he goes on to say is because there are lessons there for us to learn from what happened to them. Okay? And then a couple chapters later, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. And he goes into his whole explanation of spiritual gifts. You know, I don't want you to be uninformed about how spiritual gifts operate, how they function, and how we should use them, how we should employ them uh, in the church. Uh, he, uses it, uh, uh, he uses it in 2 Corinthians. He says... I don't want you to be unaware, again speaking to the Corinthians, I don't want you to be unaware of my sufferings in Asia. So there was something about him having suffered in Asia that was important for them to know. And he goes on and he explains the role of suffering and the role that suffering plays in the life of a believer and how how his suffering benefits the Corinthians. And he says, I don't want you to be unaware of that. And then, of course, in Thessalonians, he says, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, about those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. He doesn't want us to be unaware of the resurrection of the saints. All right? 
So there's just repeatedly, there's this idea of, I don't want you to be unaware. And, and it covers a wide variety of things that Paul does not want us to be unaware of. And this is one of them, this mystery that he's going to talk about. And, and what strikes me about this idea of Paul saying, I don't want you to be unaware, and then is, is using it in reference to this wide variety of things, things about himself and what his motives were and things he's experienced and things about what's happened to Israel in the past and how that relates to you and things about the resurrection of the, of the saints and, and how even if we, die, if we die in the Lord, we're going to rise again. And, and, uh, and the thing about spiritual gifts and the practice of spiritual gifts is it illustrates for us the connection between right knowledge and right action. In every case, when Paul cluing people into something he doesn't want them to be unaware of, and actually all of Paul's writings are that, he just... He just says it specifically in his half a dozen cases. But in, but in all of Paul's writing, that's implied, isn't it? I don't want you to be unaware of these things. In everything he says, that's implied. Okay? But the point is that Paul sees a clear connection between the people he's writing to and them living the life, the kind of life he believes they ought to live before the Lord, is connected with them understanding certain truths. And the point of that is that it's, it's become quite popular uh, in our culture and in our day and age and in the church today. It's been, become very popular to say, well, you know, to us, doctrine really isn't all that important. What's important is, is love and living the life, you know, and living a Christian life. And so we don't emphasize here in our church uh, thankfully, I don't think this is true of Trinity, but oftentimes it's at our church, we don't, we don't stress doctrine. We don't stress theology. We just, we just want people to live the Christian life. But in Paul's mind, he, he connects ignorance with not successfully living the life the way God wants us to live it. That in order to live, in order to live right, we need right knowledge. Now, of course, we all know people who maybe don't know a lot about the Bible and they don't know a lot of theology and stuff. And, and they seem to be pretty good people. And we know we probably all know some Christians who maybe they're pretty simple and they don't understand a whole lot of things about various aspects of doctrine and theology, but they, but they, but they do seem to be decent Christians and we enjoy their fellowship and we enjoy uh, their love and their care. And of course, uh, that is true. But if we really ask, why do they act the way they do act? They do act the way they act because of what they understand is the right way to act and why it's the right way to act that way. So ultimately, right actions is connected with right knowledge. And Paul understands that. And specifically in this regard, right action, a right attitude and a right behavior towards the people of Israel, towards the Jews, is connected to having a right understanding. And in fact, it's kind of interesting that several of these times when Paul uses this phrase, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, specifically, it is connected with those people's relationship with someone. So, for example, when Paul says, 
I don't want you to be unaware of my sufferings in Asia, as he says there in Corinthians. I don't want you to be unaware of my sufferings in Asia on your behalf. It's because he knows that for them to relate to him properly as their apostle, as the one who loves them and is bringing truth to them, for them to relate to him properly, they need to understand the price he's paid to minister to them. So oftentimes, oftentimes this area of right understanding has a direct bearing on how we relate to other people. Whether or not we love them the way Christ loves them. And we see that in this passage right here, right? I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery. And the mystery has to do with the Jews and what God has done with the Jews in relationship with Jesus. Because he says, I do not want you to be wise in your own estimation. I don't want you to develop this arrogance or this conceit towards Israel and towards the Jews. And so in order to prevent that, it's important that you understand this mystery. Right? So so there is then this this unavoidable link between right knowledge and right action. And so it would behoove us if we want to grow, if we don't just if we don't want to just kind of be stagnant in the development of character, one of the keys to not being stagnant in the development of our character is to be growing in our knowledge, to be growing in our understanding. Now knowledge of itself, of course, is no guarantee of right action. It's not, it, it, it is not sufficient. We could put it this way. It's not sufficient for right action, but it is necessary for right action, right? So just because you have right knowledge doesn't mean you will act right, uh, but you can't act right ultimately without the right knowledge. So it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So enough, enough said about that. So then he says, he says, uh, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, but why doesn't he want them to be unaware? Okay, so this is just the idea that he's already developed earlier in the chapter. That if we don't understand how God has worked in the in the life of Israel in the past and how he's working now and how he's going to work in the future, if we don't understand that, it's very easy for us to become anti-Semitic. It's very easy for us to develop an attitude of looking down our noses at the Jews, of thinking that God has written them off, and, 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 then, and then behaving towards them in ways that are unchristlike and that are, that are not honoring to the Lord. And so, so we want to really understand this principle. Because these are God's people and he cares very deeply about them, as we'll see. He still cares very deeply about them, as we will see. And if we look down our noses at them, if we become arrogant towards them, if we dismiss them or write them off, what we do to the least of these, we have done to Christ, right? And so we want to we want to take this admonition very seriously. So he says, I do not want you to be unaware. I do not want you, brethren, to be unaware of this mystery, lest you become wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. So then he goes on to talk about this mystery. So he brings up this idea of a mystery. And and this concept of of uh, this concept of mystery 
is very, um, or, or the word mystery and, and the ideas of mystery are, were very, uh, very prevalent in Paul's day. Okay? But there were kind of two distinct ways of looking at this idea of mystery. Typically today, when we think of a mystery, we think of Sherlock Holmes or, or, uh, or something like that, right? But, but in Paul's day, the, the word mystery or the idea or the concept of mystery was used within the culture, within the, uh, within the society, was used in kind of two very distinct, very contrasting in some way ways, okay? And, and one way that was very prevalent, and you begin to pick this up as you get to some of the later epistles, you get to 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, where, where they begin to confront this, is the idea of mystery as it was associated with what are called the mystery cults, okay, or the mystery religions. And you have, uh, actually they, they predate uh, the Christian era by many, many centuries, but particularly as you come uh, to the time of, of the birth of the church and in the centuries right around the birth of the church, uh, you have the development, or the really profound development of the mystery religions, particularly uh, uh, what have particular significance to the church and its influence on the church, is the development of the mystery religions within the Greek-speaking world. Okay? And, and the mystery religions were just the idea... Uh, uh, there's a lot more to it than this, but it was, was just the idea that there are, there are certain spiritual realities that, that are really hidden. And they're very difficult to know. And, and, it's, and, and it's, it's, it takes a great deal of discipline. It takes exactly the right techniques and it takes a lifetime of effort to get to discover the true reality. And the true reality is all spiritual. And everything we see and everything we feel and everything we touch, the material world is all an illusion. It really doesn't exist. Okay? And and so what we want to do is we want to shed this illusion and we want to enter into this very secretive spiritual world that only a few people get to. What does that sound like? Okay, it sounds like mysticism and the word mystery. What else? What religion today does it sound like? Okay, pantheism, okay? The pantheistic religions. And, and they are rooted in a concept we call monism. Okay, which comes, uh, which comes from the word what? Mono, meaning one, okay? And, and the idea of monism is that all reality is just one, if I could use this word, thing, okay? But it's a spiritual thing, not a material thing, okay? And so everything is one. So we're sitting in this room and you're sitting in your chair and you think there's somebody sitting next to you, but they're really not because you're all really one. Now, I hate to tell you, but you're really me. Now, that's scary, isn't it? Okay. (laughs) Peggy goes, ew. (laughs) Okay. And I'm you. Okay, that's even, that's just as bad, right? Okay, and we're all God. 
And God is us, and it's all one, okay? But it doesn't look like that, does it? Because we have this kind of dualistic view of life and reality, that I'm me and that chair is a chair, okay? And they're two distinct, separate things. But in monism and in uh, in monistic pantheism, it all gets blended into one, and we can't see that. So, obviously, it's a hidden truth. Fortunately, from the perspective of the mystery cults, fortunately, there's a few of us that we've tapped into that. We've meditated and, and, or, or, you know, done our mantras or whatever, and we've, we've finally gotten free of this illusion. And we are now, we now understand and we're in touch with this reality. But you're not there yet, right? So what you need is you need a spiritual guide. You need somebody or someone or something to take you under their wings and to help you discover this mystery that's hidden and only a few people see it. Okay? Now, now this is becoming very prevalent in the Centuries just before the development of church, and particularly in the first, second, third century, etc., etc. Okay, and and one expression of it in the in beginning a lot in the developed a lot in the second century. Something you've heard of before, called Gnosticism. And this is one form of the mystery religions. Okay, and you've probably heard about the Gnostic heresy in the church. It began to permeate the church particularly predominantly in the 2nd to the 4th centuries until finally the church had a big council and they sat down and they go, no, it's not the way it is. This is the way it is. And they went back to the New Testament and said, it's like this, okay? Because the New Testament directly contradicts this whole idea of monism and as you'll see, the idea of mystery, okay? So, uh, so you, have these, you have this idea of... There's this mystery and only a few people really have access to it. And if you want to get access to it, you've got to go and you've got to listen to and put yourself under the teaching and the instruction, the tutoring of these great mystics, these great people, the Buddhas or the whatever, who have finally tapped in to this great, you know, spiritual, this great oneness. What's the problem with that? Uh, I'm sure there's all kinds of problems, but what's the problem with that? Let me put it this way. If I came to you and I said, I've got this secret knowledge. I know this secret knowledge. And the only way that you're going to get it is if you listen to what I tell you. Well, it makes me Christ, yes, yeah. But what does it do to truth? What does it do to the accessibility of truth? It makes it very subjective, which makes it suspect, which is not true at all. <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay. You know the truth, so you don't have access to it. Except through, which makes it a seller's market, doesn't it? Makes it a seller's market. 
And I think it's interesting that down through history that there's always been people that want to be in that position simply because of the power mm-hmm. and the control. Exactly. And the, and the thing is, if I'm not an enlightened one, there's no way that I can determine this truth, if this is true, unless I submit to it before I've determined it's true. That's why I call it a seller's market. The buyer has no leverage. He has no way to evaluate, you know, the enlightened one comes. If I come to you as the enlightened one, you have no way that you can validate or verify what I'm telling you until you submit to it and believe it. And that's the only way you can verify. It is, exactly, yes. And of course, so we find many cults that operate that way. Okay. So this is the way the idea of mystery is used very commonly in the Greek-speaking world in Paul's day. But there's another way that mystery is used. And it's the way the Jewish, what we call the Jewish apocalyptic writers used it. Well, you know what Jewish and writers mean. What do I mean when I say apocalyptic? Okay, okay. So it's when the Jews, both within the canon of Scripture and even those writing outside the canon of Scripture, Jews writing out, were writing about the end times. And they also spoke of mystery. Okay? But then when they used it, they used it in a completely different sense than it was used in the sense that we've been talking about in the mystery religions. When they used it, they used it to refer to something which had been hidden. Which God had hidden and nobody knew, but that at some point in history, God had revealed it for public dissemination. And so they would refer to it as a mystery, not because it was still a mystery, but because it had been a mystery, but now it's public information about something that's going to happen in the end times. Apocalyptic. Jewish apocalyptic writers. And so they would speak of mystery in reference to these future events that nobody knew were going to happen until God revealed them. And when He revealed them, it was like He printed them in the newspaper for everybody to have access to. Okay. So when Paul uses the word mystery, and he uses it many times, it's used a number of times in the New Testament. Paul uses it a lot. Uh, when it's used in the New Testament, it carries with it most of this idea of the Jewish apocalyptic writings. It carries with it this idea that it's something that nobody knew about until God made a revelation to somebody and he gave it to somebody, but not so they could hold it and dish it out, you know, a little bit in order to manipulate people, but he gave it to them to publish, to preach, to make known to all people so that everybody would have access to it. I think of the verse in, in Deuteronomy when, when, when in Deuteronomy 29 it says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed are revealed for us and for our sons forever. So, it's the idea that, yes, there are things we don't know that only God knows. But when He makes them known, He makes them known for all people. Okay. 
So Paul talks about mystery, and he talks about, as I said, he uses the idea many times in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 2, he talks about the mystery of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the mystery of the resurrection of the saints. In Ephesians 1, he talks about the mystery of the summing up of all things in Christ. In Ephesians 3, he talks about the mystery of the Gentiles as fellow heirs with the Jews. Uh, to the promises of Abraham. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about the mystery of Christ and the church that's illustrated in human marriage. In Colossians 1, he talks about the mystery of Christ in you, your hope of glory. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3.16, he talks about the mystery of godliness. And a bunch of other places, he talks about all kinds of mysteries. But in every case, this is mystery that's now made available to all. Yes, Gary? Yes. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. And of course, God uses men. He uses prophets or whatever. But it is a clear revelation, and it's very clear that He intends it to be published to everybody. So we have, for example, John writing in First John, dealing with the kind of the beginnings of this influence within church this is still in the first century, so it's not Gnosticism per se, but he's dealing with it and he says, you have no need of anyone to teach you because the Holy Spirit will teach you. Now, Paul's not saying we don't need teachers in the church. What, he's, what, what, what John is addressing is this idea of the, of, the, of the mystic with the secret knowledge. That's what he's dealing with when he says you have no need of anyone to teach you. He's not saying we don't need teachers in the church. What's the difference between this kind of a teacher, a mystic teacher, and a teacher in the church? Uh, a gifted teacher per 1 Corinthians chapter 12. What would be the difference? I'm going to tell you what you need to know because I'm the one that knows it. Okay. teacher in the church. Let me help you understand what you know. Okay, okay. We have scriptures that, like for example, you're not... You're, you haven't gathered this that I have all the secret knowledge. Yes. We're just simply going through all the time available in the Holy Scriptures. Exactly. And we're just getting the Exactly. So, what, so the, the gifted teacher in the New Testament church, the gifted teacher is someone who is simply particularly skilled has, by, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, is skilled at communicating and, and helping people grasp Truth that is publicly available. It's in the public domain. And his role is simply to help people think that through and whatever. But he doesn't have any access to secret knowledge. There's nothing I'm saying to you today that any one of you could not have discovered on your own just by the Holy Spirit and a little bit of hard work. Okay? It's easily accessible. You didn't need me. Having me around might make it a little... I hope it makes it a little bit easier. Okay? But... Uh, so that's the difference, all right? Well, uh, so uh, so we have this mystery, and now he tells us exactly what this mystery is, and it has three parts to it. See if you can tell me. What are the three parts of this mystery? The particular mystery we're talking about here in this chapter. There has been a hardening. And what kind of a hardening? He describes it. Partial hardening. A partial, there's been a partial hardening of Israel 
It's the first part of the mystery. What's the fullness of the Gentiles? Until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And what's the third part? All Israel will be saved. Okay. So this and and uh, and these are all things that he's already well, except for the fullness of the Gentiles part. This these are all things he's already told us in chapter eleven. Okay. So like I said, he's kind of summarizing what he's already told us, and that is there has been a partial hardening of Israel. We now know that because we've studied the earlier part of chapter eleven. Okay. And so there's this this. Uh, Partial hardening, we understand that it's partial because we understand that not all Jews have been hardened. Some have, most have, but there has been a remnant. There's been a small portion who have not been hardened. Okay, So there is this partial hardening of Israel. And it has been, we have seen, both judicial and salvific. It's been judicial on Israel initially. Because of, their, because of their disobedience and their unbelief, God has allowed them to go further and further into hardening. So it's judicial in that respect, but it's been salvific in that it had an effect of releasing the gospel out to the Gentiles. And then that reciprocates back in influencing ultimately the Jews to become jealous and then eventually to embrace the gospel. So it's been both judicial and it's been salvific, as we've said. There's been this partial hardening. And now we know, he's told us already that it's temporary, that eventually they are going to come back. But now we know when. And that when is when. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay. Now, I don't think there that, that that what he's saying is that this... This salvation of the Jews is going to happen only after every last single Gentile gets saved. Now, it could be that that's what he's saying. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think what he's saying is that as we reach the climax of God's work with the Gentiles, as that climax is being reached, and the fullness of the Gentiles, and notice that term, fullness of the Gentiles, is the same term he used earlier to refer to the fullness of the Jews. So he's already talked about the fullness of the Jews when 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 they're all when 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 Israel as a people are going to turn back to God and now he speaks of the fullness of the Gentiles. Obviously, it's something that's not happened yet. So that's something we have to look forward to, isn't it? We have look we have something to look forward to of a of a of a mighty great working among the Gentiles. Now, there's been a lot of exciting stuff going on among the Gentiles for the last couple thousand years, but I'm expecting greater things yet. A greater working of God reaching a grand climax, and when or as that grand climax with the Gentiles is occurring, then will come this salvation of the Jews. Okay? So, we have this partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then we have, he says, so all Israel will be saved. And in those first three words, so all Israel, we have three difficult questions. And they are, what does the word so mean? What does it refer to? What does the word all mean? What is he saying there? And who's he talking about when he's talking about Israel? And let's take the last question first. Uh, When he... When he talks about Israel, 
as we know, uh, he sometimes, and the New Testament sometimes, when it talks about Israel, talks about ethnic or national Israel, the people, the, the actual physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So sometimes it's used that way. And sometimes it is used in reference to the people of God throughout history, all the elect, if you want to call them that, all the elect, all those people who ultimately say Gentiles and Jews as they are part of the church. Okay, And so this whole conglomerate of Gentile and Jew is sometimes referred to as spiritual Israel or, or, or Israel. Okay, and, and Paul does talk about it in that terms at times. And, uh, and we've seen cases like in Romans 9 where he does that briefly. And in other places in the New Testament, we see that concept of Israel in this general sense. And some commentators, not a lot, but some commentators see in this verse, when he talks about all Israel being saved, that's what he's talking about. But if that is, in fact, what he's talking about, we encounter the same problem that we talked about a couple of weeks ago of a tautology, a rhetorical tautology, where he's kind of, it looks like he's making an argument, but he's not really saying anything, okay? So we have a tautology here. He's saying, and all the elect will be saved. Well, we already know that. So he's not telling us anything, okay? But the major problem with that view is that in all the verses previous in chapter 11, when he's talked about Israel, he's been clearly talking about ethnic Israel. Okay, That is clear. We do know that. So if suddenly in this verse he changes and he's talking about spiritual Israel, he's given us no clue that that's what he's doing. He's totally changed forces in the middle of the stream without any indication that he's doing so. So it is reasonable for us to assume that when he says all Israel will be saved, he's talking about ethnic Israel. He's talking about the descendants of Abraham. So the next question is, what, going in reverse order, what is the all? What does he mean when he says all Israel will be saved? Is, does he mean that every single Jew at this point in history, after all the Gentiles have come in, or at the fullness of the, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, is, is he saying that every single Jew is going to be saved? Probably not. Because this phrase, all Israel, of course here in the original, it's in the Greek. And if we get a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and we look at it, that, those identical, that identical Greek phrase, all Israel, is used 136 times in the Septuagint. And very similar terms are also used a few times in the Septuagint. And in the vast majority of cases, when it's used in the Septuagint, it doesn't mean every single Jew, but rather it's speaking corporately or it's speaking representatively. An example would be, remember the story when Absalom overthrew his father David and chased him out of Jerusalem. And when he did, he wanted to make he wanted to make himself odious, it says, to his father. He wanted to, he wanted to demonstrate to the people he was now the king of because he'd overthrown his father. He wanted to demonstrate to them how he was totally in charge and they needed to fear him. Do you remember how he did that? Okay. He put a tent up on the palace roof and he had his father's concubines brought to him and he committed adultery with all of his father's concubines. But it says he did it in the sight of all Israel. 
Now, when we read that, we don't assume that every single Jew from clear up, you know, in the northern part of Israel or the southern part, all came together and stood around the palace and watched. That would be a physical impossibility. But the point is that it was sufficiently public that it was as, it was as if all of Israel had seen it. And all of Israel knew it. Okay. So his message is, his message is, this is, was such a public thing. And those people who did see it obviously gossiped about it and talked about it and got the word out. And so it became as though all Israel knew. Okay. So when he uses this term, all Israel, he is, he is uh, almost certainly speaking not in terms of every single Jew being saved, but that such an overwhelming number of them, probably a vast majority of them are saved, that it represents all of Israel. Okay? And then the last question that we have, and then we'll quit, is the question, what does he mean by so all Israel will be saved? Uh, the, the word there that's translated from the Greek uh, is, is a word that really has the sense of in this way or thus. So, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And it can refer backwards or forwards. So, here it can refer to the things that were said just before it, or it can refer to the things that immediately follow it. Alright? So, here it could be that he's saying in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, referring back to the hardening of Israel and the ingathering of the Gentiles and the jealousy of Israel, and then their salvation. He could be referring back to that, things he's talked about earlier in the chapter. In this way, all Israel will be saved. The Jews are hardened. The Gentiles get saved. The Jews look at that. They get jealous, and they come to Christ. Or he could be looking forward to what he's about to say. In this way, they will be saved, just as it is written. The Redeemer will come out of Zion. He uh, He will remove wickedness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I forgive their sins. So he could be referring forward. And, and I don't know which one you prefer. I, and I don't think it makes a great, uh, might make a little difference, but I think you'd be safe either way. If you think it's referring backwards to the things he's already said, you're on pretty safe ground. Because those certainly have played a role in the salvation, will have played a role in the salvation of the Jews. Or if it's looking forward, and I like that because it points to how they're really going to get saved. They're really going to get saved by the coming of the Redeemer. They're really going to get saved by Christ coming and forgiving their sins and taking transgression out of Jacob. So, so whichever one you view, the clear message that Paul is making is that this, this point in the future, which he associates with the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Deliverer, at this point in the future, there is going to be this great salvation in Israel. So as you and I look on Israel, it will be as we view it, as though all Israel has been saved. It's going to be a marvelous thing. And, and early in the chapter, he says, can you imagine? He says what it's going to be like. What it's going to be like when the fullness of Israel has come in. It's just going to be a marvelous thing and it's going to have an impact all of us. I mean, Israel's rejection of the gospel had an impact on us. Can you imagine, Paul says, what it's going to be like when they accept it? Okay. Well, there's a few other things in this verse, and then we'll pick it up. So we'll pick up those last two things in these verses uh, and go on from there next week.